0: Our series, as we make our way through this book, is Lessons from the Kingdom for Today. And each week, each chapter, as we make our way through these two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, we go, we're going to be finding real-life application for today as we learn from the nation of Israel, God's uh, experiences with them. Studying these books or the, uh, the Old Testament um in general it's it's not only about um, I, I suppose, learning stories and finding their meaning, though we're we're seeking practical application in our lives, as I just mentioned, and the Holy Spirit is going to provide that of, of course, but this is uh, this account, what we're looking at it's it's part of a bigger theme, the unfolding of God's redemptive. Love His plan to restore what was lost in the garden, to redeem creation, that he again might walk in friendship and intimacy with you and I, with men and women. Our message today is titled, Redeeming Israel, Redeeming the World. In understanding this, we want to take... um, we want, to, we want to back up a bit and remind ourselves of the history of this people through whom Jesus Christ came, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. History, after all, matters. I don't know. Maybe there might be some of you that are history buffs. You love history. Maybe you didn't do well in history in high school. Maybe you maybe you majored it in college. I don't know. I, I had a, a great history teacher. I think it was my 11th grade year. Uh, Mr. Lockard, he was, he was legendary at our high school. And <laughs> it was kind of funny because I remember him teaching on the Civil War. Inevitably, he would, he would teach on some subject, and he had these two metal cabinets at the back of the classroom. He would go back, open them up, and pull out something that related to what he was talking about, a bullet from some battlefield or, you know, Abraham Lincoln's top hat. He didn't really have that. But um, he, he made it very interesting, and yet still I struggled because I wasn't that great of a student. He would assign homework, and I, I would, you know, moan and complain, and, and he would chide me. I, I loved it. He, he would say, uh, free time is the devil's handiwork, Aaron, and, uh, and, and encourage me to do my work. He loved the Lord. He was a, he was a great guy. He's home with the Lord now, um, but understanding the past is so important. It's a key to understanding the present and the future, especially so when it comes to scripture. A Charles Wolfe wrote the following, which will sound familiar. Those who don't study the past will repeat its errors. Those who do study it will find other ways to err. I like that. It was Dr. A.T. Pearson who stated that history is his story. You know, we see in our present experience today in our own nation uh, many who are suffering from a lack of understanding history, it really undercuts your ability to appreciate the present, the things that we enjoy today and and the cost and the path that we had to walk in order to be where we are and, and In the context of the gospel and the church it 's important as well to understand how we the church got to where we are, where the gospel came from. Uh, where and how it originated. And so what we're going to witness as we study Samuel is the continued unfolding of God's great plan of redemption for his people Israel and for the whole of the world. This, this morning as we begin 1 Samuel, we're going to take a little time getting to know Israel as a people, their history. We'll learn that Israel was in fact God's chosen People, The instrument through which he would work to bring a Savior into the world, both for Israel and, once again, for every people group, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel was preached, preached first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And some of us, maybe over the years, we've read passages about that in the New Testament, like Romans 1.16, Paul uh, wrote there, we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. We can come across that and it can seem a little confusing. Why the Jew first? Why not to everyone? When Jesus sent the disciples to minister, he instructed them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet, as is the case in the Old Testament, again and again, we see him going out of his way to reach and minister to Gentiles, to non-Jews, the woman at the well, uh, his ministry in the region of the Decapolis up there in the north below the Sea of Galilee where it was predominantly a Gentile area, his healing of and ministering to others outside of Israel that you read about in the Gospels. God's heart was to redeem all, but the Redeemer was first promised to and would come through Israel, and he would come through one particular tribe and family. The prophet Jeremiah writes about this in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David, the very king david that samuel focuses on so much in these books that we're now studying a branch of righteousness a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth in his days judah will be saved and israel will dwell safely now this is his name by which he will be called the lord our righteousness or jehovah to sid the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, would come from the house and lineage of David. In 1 Samuel, we're, we're eventually introduced to this king, and we find Israel moving from a stage in their history in which they were ruled by judges to a monarchy. And so if we were working chronologically through the Bible, we would read Judges first and then 1 Kings 1 Samuel is a record of that time, that that transition and the beginning of the kings of Israel. In fact, uh, there is a special emphasis on King David, who will become the beginning of the family line of Jesus Christ. 42 generations later... Jesus will come after David. Matthew writes of that in chapter 1, verse 1. It opens up the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Verse 17, so from the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So as we study Samuel, we're studying the history of salvation. In many ways, it's, it's the record of the origins of our salvation, at least an important part of the story. Now briefly, as we move into this book, Uh, let's remind ourselves we're going to of of a few details regarding Israel and the Old Testament. And before we begin, we're going to pause and pray real quick because I know some of you are not fans of history, so we're going to pray God gives you a hungering and thirsting after not just righteousness, but Israel's history. So let's pray now and we'll dive in, all right? Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you'd make it come alive to us, your people, Lord, that you'd speak to us. We thank you, God, that here in our present experience in the year 2022, on October, the, whichever it is, 15th or 16th, I can't remember now, but Lord, you put in place a, a, a plan, God, before the foundation of the world, you chose a people through whom would come your son, the Messiah, that we who are listening right now might be saved, redeemed, that you might lift our feet from the miry clay and set them on the rock. God, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us as we we look to Israel and see a reflection of ourselves. God, because your patience and your persistence with them speaks to the grace and mercy you extend to us. We pray that you would fill this time now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into Samuel, we're going to take Israel's uh, sort of this this. Uh, contextual look at Israel in three parts. Context is important when we study the Bible. We're careful to do that as we as we move through books and and verses. We like to understand what's the context. What is the author talking about? We we don't want to uh, do what's called um, eisegeting, which is imposing a meaning on the text. We want to exegete. We want to pull from it what's actually there. And in order to do that rightly, we need to understand the context. What's being spoken about? And so really we want to do this for the whole of the book of Samuel by looking at some history of Israel. So first of all, a recap of Israel's history. Paul actually writes to the Corinthians that when we study Israel, when we remember them, there's something there for us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition, yours and mine, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. When we read the Old Testament, when we see God's interactions with Israel, her victories and her failures, we are to draw from that. We're to learn and grow. So historically speaking, first of all, where did Israel come from? Well, we find that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, they began with one man. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Before Israel was ever in the land we know today as their home, Uh, there was one man who was in a place elsewhere, we learn, was called Ur of the Chaldees. That's in modern-day Iraq, near the Persian Gulf and the river Euphrates, actually ancient southern Mesopotamia. That's where Abram was, and God called Abram to follow him. Hebrews 11 gives us a little additional insight into Abram's abraham's journey of faith by faith abram learned to follow god his name later being changed to abraham he was promised that god would bless his family make him a blessing to all nations and that he himself would eventually become a nation imagine if god said that to you I mean, I have enough tra- trouble keeping track of my wife and my three children and, and staying in touch with extended family. Imagine if God said, you, you, you one person, you're going to become a whole nation. Well, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who became the father of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And at that point, they were still just a family, a big family, but just one family, and though living in once again what we know of today as modern Israel, they 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 didn't have any kind of uh, presence in terms of controlling the land or having it as their homeland. That wouldn't happen until after they'd moved to Egypt as the result of a great famine in the area and then lived there for 400 years, towards the end of which we know they became slaves and then were delivered from slavery through the Exodus under the leadership of Moses, at which time God gave them the law. We think of the Ten Commandments, there was really 613 in total that governed all uh, manners of life. Well, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, Israel entered into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua and began receiving and assuming the land that God had given them. Over time, God raised up judges to lead the people, not yet kings. Samuel is actually, according to 1 Samuel 7 and 8, we'll get there later, he's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets that Israel had once they were in the land. But the time of the judges was dark. We read in Judges 17 verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That should sound familiar to us in terms of our experience in the world today. Leaving lots of details out, that's basically where Israel is at right before the time of the kings. It's a difficult time for Israel as a people. But having considered some of Israel's history, we we want to look at a warning that God gave his people Because this transition from being ruled and led by judges, it wasn't without pitfalls. You see, the law that God had given to Israel after the exodus from Egypt, it actually warned Israel against a king. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14, when you come into the land which the Lord God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You'd think they would have scratched their heads and remembered this, when in fact it actually happened, and that was almost literally what they said. We want a a king to rule over us like all the other nations. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But you shall not, he rather, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he multiply great, uh, rather, silver and gold for himself. We'll pause here for a moment. Some of us are glossing over. Going, okay, what are we talking about here, pastor? Multiplying horses and going to Egypt. What does this have anything to do with today? Okay, barely a week goes by where I don't see an article in the news talking about who's somebody who went to Congress and, and never held a job in, in the public or, or, or rather the private sector, and yet now somehow they're a multimillionaire. How did that happen? That's what this is talking about. He's saying, I don't want them multiplying horses and wives. and money. It shouldn't be in it for that. They should be there to serve God and serve the people. That's what's being spoken of here. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest and the Levites. Imagine if when a man or a woman was elected to high office, President of the United States, they had to copy word for word the Bible. Let's just say the first five books, the the law, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Imagine if they had to do that and then they were to read it all their days. And it shall be, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. What a difference it would make for any king over Israel to actually do what the law, the word of God said, to live and and do justly and walk humbly before God, to be careful not to amass wealth to themselves, to have a handwritten copy of the scriptures that, that he would study all the days of his life. Some of you have, have read and studied first and second kings, first and second chronicles. You, you are familiar with the Old Testament and where this story is going. How much pain would have been uh, spared Israel and her rulers had they simply done? what the law of God said, and it's important that we understand this before we make our way into Samuel and are introduced to the nation's leaders in the coming weeks. How much pain would we save ourselves if we would be not hearers only, but doers of the word, if we would be students of God's word and purpose in our hearts, Lord, that I would live and do these things. Finally, in looking to establish a little bit of a a recap, a review of the history of Israel, we want to reflect on God's promises to them as a people. God, God had a very special purpose for Israel, and one of the promises given by God came would come later through the prophet Jeremiah. We looked at this passage recently in our Hope in the Valley series, but it was a word given specifically to Israel in the midst of God's judgment and discipline against her for centuries of sin and rebellion. Sadly, uh, it would be 400 plus years after where we're starting in Samuel right now that the people had so persistently and consistently not obeyed God's law and the kings had led them so far from God's heart and mind that he finally had to judge them and they were led captive uh, to Babylon as prisoners. Well, during that time, Jeremiah had a word of hope for the people, Israel, even though the Assyrians actually had taken the northern tribes earlier and taken them away as captives, the Babylonians took the southern tribes, but even though they'd been judged in such a severe way for having disobeyed God so thoroughly, even still, God was committed to his people, And a point that I'll make again is, among other things, one of the reasons that understanding Israel's history is important is because when we see God's faithfulness and his commitment to Israel, who again and again and again disobeyed him, it encourages us. Because how many times do we imagine, surely God can't forgive me again? He must be exasperated with me at this point. I I think God's given up on me. No, go back and look at Israel and remind yourself of his commitment and his faithfulness to his covenant people. Likewise, he is committed to you and I. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. And cause you to return to this place. Jeremiah said, yeah, you're going to be disciplined. You're going to be punished. But that's not the end. In 70 years, God's going to start over again. And he's going to bring you back home. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be scattered away captive. When our hearts are tempted ourselves to believe that we've gone too far, that there's not grace left for us, that that we have expended and we've spent the mercies of God. We need to remember that we serve a God who finishes what he has started. In fact, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 gives us that promise, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. John 10 goes even further, verse 27. Those of us that are inclined to feel a burden of carrying the weight of our own salvation in the face of our failures, what does Jesus tell us? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So it was for Israel, and so it is for you and I. And so with that foundation laid of understanding uh, a bit of the context of Israel, God's commitment ...to them and his covenant through them by which the Savior would come, we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. We're going to see it in three parts. The parents, the problem, and the prayer. Uh, before we meet any kings in this book, we're introduced to a family. Parents who will have a son, in fact, Samuel, who will become a great prophet. And he is the author of this book, at least of the, the majority of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, someone else, uh, whom we're not aware of their identity, finished the parts where Samuel uh, is, has been uh, died at that point. But God is going to use Samuel powerfully in the nation of Israel, and especially so in the lives of of her first two kings. But Samuel will not be perfect. His family won't be perfect. Although we'll find that Samuel's father is a worshiper and his mother is a woman who prays. So we begin with the parents. Verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, where in the world is that? Well, Raphaim, Zophim, or Ramah, that's a little bit easier, was located in central Israel. And as the text reads, this was a mountainous region in the territory of Ephraim, the, the tribe of Ephraim, their, their territorial allotment. And it's directly above where Judah was, that tribe, and where Jerusalem, Israel's eventual capital, would be located. In the New Testament times, this will be probably a little more familiar to you, this area was known as Arimathea. That's where Joseph of Arimathea was from, in whose tomb Jesus was buried. And his name, this certain man, was Elkanah, Samuel's father, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now, if you're getting scared off by these names, don't worry. This isn't the book of Numbers or Chronicles. Uh, we're not going to have a whole lot of crazy names like this, okay? So um, just take a deep breath with me. Elkanah, the, the father here, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, was of the priestly family of Kohath. So he was from the tribe of Levi. And he was called an Ephraimite, not because he was from the tribe of Ephraim, but because he lived in that territory. Because remember, the Levites, though all other tribes got specific areas to settle in, God said, no, I'm your inheritance, you of the family of Levi. And so they were spread all over Israel. Verse 2, and he had two wives. So, uh, so here, if we need a little scandal or things to get interesting, we'll get, we get a little... Um, Little O.C. Israel housewives going on here. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, uh, Penanah. Penanah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and uh, also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So Shiloh is actually not far from where... Uh, This family is from, it's to the south a little bit, but also there in the mountains of Ephraim. And this is where the tabernacle was located at that time. Remember, the temple wouldn't be built until Israel's third king, Solomon. Right now, they're still worshiping through the tent of worship that God instructed them to build when they were wandering in the desert after they'd received the law on Mount Sinai. So, where is the scandal? Elkanah's got two wives. What's that about? I mean, for goodness sake, you'd think one would be enough, right? No, I'm just kidding. Like, but but really, I'm, well, but not for that reason. Never mind. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's got two wives. Uh-oh, what does this mean? Well, it means you can have two wives, and, you know, your life will work out like his. Let's keep reading. No. Um, while we come across examples, <laughs> I guess I just want to get myself in trouble. To, it's because my wife's, you know, she's in a kid's ministry, so I can talk about cars running out of gas and things like that again today. Just kidding. Um, We run across situations like this in the Bible where we read something and we scratch our heads and go, well, that's not right. It's okay to read it and go, you're right, it's not right. It's not an example of what to do. It's an example of, of what shouldn't be done because God's word's already been clear up until this point. Genesis tells us explicitly that marriage was designed by God to be one man and one woman till death do they part. I did a wedding yesterday, and I always close them with that phrase. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's God's first and best design. And Jesus reiterates that in Mark chapter 10, the same thing. But God is working with imperfect people. Generally speaking, though, when we run across examples like this, the Bible doesn't necessarily go out of its way to condemn the situation because we already know it's not right, but it tends to speak for itself when you read about the consequences. You look and you go, oh, this is what happens when you walk outside of God's plan, outside of his best. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had children. No children. Peninnah had no problem becoming pregnant, but Hannah sadly was barren, and this would be a terrible burden for her to carry, especially in that day and time. Uh, it, it's it's likely that Elkanah had married a second wife due to Hannah's barrenness. Uh, this was not required or instructed by God. Ha- Elkanah probably chose not to trust God in this area and was seeking to fix this on his own. In fact, it may have been like Sarah and Abraham. Remember they couldn't conceive children and she went to Abraham and said, go into my maidservant Hagar. And Abraham said, sounds good to me. And along came Ishmael, right? And we know how that story goes if you've studied the Old Testament. It caused massive problems on a tectonic scale. Well, It's likely that this is the same sort of situation, and I'm sure none of us can relate to trying to solve our problems on our own apart from trusting and seeking God. Remember, there's things we can learn here from Israel's failures and missteps. Verse 3, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. It's interesting because the Lord of hosts, that name and title for God is used here, and it's the first time in Scripture that we read this, the first of of what will be hundreds of times going forward. This is the idea of him being the Lord of armies, the host of heaven and Lord of the angelic hosts. Now, while this family had problems... It's noteworthy that even in this dark time in Israel's history, Elkanah was worshiping, not a perfect man, but a man who prioritized and sought God out. The nation was, was in a, a place of um, confusion and difficulty, suffering for lack of leadership, but this man was seeking and serving God. So we're introduced to this imperfect family, um, One wife in pain, a husband who's seeking God, and the priest who we'll get to know a little bit better as we move through the book. But the second point we come to this morning, looking at verses 4 through 7, is the problem, or we could call it problems because there's more than one. Verse 4, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, because he would do this on a regular basis, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And again, that reminds us of Sarah and Hagar. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So again, we see some of those practical consequences of stepping outside of God's best and his plan. Uh, Elkanah's family, it's fashioned after his own ideas rather than the word of God. And it has soured. It's caused a lot of strain and difficulty. Elkanah is trying to resolve that pain and and comfort his wife Hannah, who he appears to love uh, more and likely loved first in, in this family. To Hannah, we read he would give a double portion. What does that mean that he would give a, a double portion? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, it tells us about what's going on here. We read, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Wherever the tabernacle or later the temple ends up, seek it out. That's where you're to worship and offer. Uh, sacrifices. There you shall take your burnt offering, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We talked about this not long ago, but worship for the children of Israel, at least a portion of it, was was in some ways like a barbecue because there was a part consumed and received by the Lord. There was a part given to the priesthood uh, for their, their care and needs, and then the people themselves partook of a portion, sort of like communion, how we partake in this meal that Jesus has invited us to. Well, in, in this case... In this case, uh, Elkanah has made the offering, and the portion that has come back to him for his family, because it was a large family, so he'd be making a lot of offerings, he would give what was right for Peninnah and her children, but then he would give twice as much for Hannah as a way of favoring her and showing her his love and to help compensate for the pain in her life, Peninnah's mocking and just the grief of being uh, without child. Well, lastly, we come now to the prayer. We'll talk more about this next week, but what we find here is that Hannah, in her pain and desperation, chooses to turn to God and to cry out to him for help. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat, and why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, every married woman or a woman who's, you know, been in some kind of relationship with a man that frustrated her. Um, You can relate to this on some level, and men, you probably can too. Because typically, oh, maybe you're better than me, but okay, we'll just say sometimes, instead of listening, instead of uh, comforting or or, uh, just listen, yeah, yeah, whatever it is we're supposed to do, we, we want to fix it, right? And, and you know, Elkin is saying to Hannah, you know, what's wrong? What's bothering you? You know what's wrong and what's bothering her. You know what's upset. And then the classic line, am I not better to you than ten sons? And I don't know if she rolled her eyes at this point. Like, you know, yeah, you're you're great, all right? And she, I'm sure she did love him, but it's like that's beside the point. That That isn't, Helping right now—that's you, you can't fix this in that way. You know, by giving me—you know—the barbecue's great and all, but it's not resolving these dip, deeper issues. This this grief in my heart of of not being able to bear a child, a son, for your uh, for your name and for posterity. And so, Hannah, graciously, her name actually means woman of grace she graciously turns to prayer because her husband is no help. Well, his heart was in the right place. Verse 9, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe in the series that we just worked our way through, there was some issue that, that uh, when we would talk about trials, it would just continue to come up in your heart, and it's something that has, has just threatened to rob you of your joy. Maybe it has, and, and, and maybe it's started to cause bitterness to develop in your heart, the discontentment, the frustration with lack. Hannah knew in this place to pray. And so she did. Verse 11, then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Not only was was her grace, this woman of grace, displayed through her patience regarding Peninnah, but in her prayer as well, though, though wrestling with bitterness, Hannah developed a sweetness in her devotion and her trust in God. Her sorrow over being childless it, it wells up within her and overflows in this prayer that she that she pours out before God. Now. Uh, We're going to learn more about this next week. We're just getting the front end of her prayer to the Lord. But suffice it to say, her response, it's a healthy one. And she's an example for us. I think it's interesting because a lot of the times when we want something, we may be desperate in prayer, but how often do we say, Lord, if you give me this thing, it's yours. I'll give it back to you. No, no, I want it for me. You know, the the jaguar, Lord, you're not going to use it anyway, so I'll take care of it for you, all right? I'll wax it. I'm not praying for a jaguar, don't worry. Um, (laughs) But we do have a little selfishness sometimes in our prayers. James speaks to that, doesn't he? You want to spend it on your own pleasures. That's why you don't get it. Things are wrong in our hearts. Hannah says, Lord, if you give me a child... My desire before anyway was that he would be yours and live for you and serve you. And I'm committing to that. He'll be yours. He'll, he will be, you will be glorified through his life. Hannah's goal was not, wasn't selfish. Wasn't, I want a child for me, for my family. It was, God, I want a son so that he can bring you glory. Because that's what I want from, from and for my life and my family. A very different perspective challenging. Uh, uh, beyond simply committing him to the Lord, we read that she was committing his life as a Levite. She says here that, that uh, all the days of his life, no razor would come upon his head. You see, what's interesting is he was already a Levite of the family of Kohath. And so he would serve in the priesthood from age 30 to 50, but she goes beyond that and says, no, all of his days he'll serve you. A Levite was was one who wasn't allowed to uh, touch or be involved with anything dead or dying. They could never uh, shave their heads, and they weren't to drink any wine or even touch grapes or anything like that. So it was a a life of full dedication an avoidance of vanity, sin, and self-pleasure. She's just going the whole way. She's saying, Lord, he belongs to you. How many of us would say, Lord... (laughs) You take my child's life, even if if it means they serve you all their days. They're a missionary in another land. Can we trust our our kids into God's hands in that way? That's exactly what Hannah's doing. It's why we read this passage very often when we dedicate children. Hannah was, was, was essentially saying, Lord, this child that you've loaned to me, I want to loan him back to you for your glory, for your purposes. What this tells me is that Hannah's heart was taken with a desire to see God worshiped and served. Having a child, it wasn't for her. It's difficult because very often the things we struggle with wanting from the Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a there's a selfishness and a self-serving tied in with it. She understood that the gift of a child was that he might be raised to worship and serve God not simply meet and need excuse me meet a need in her heart again i think it's a healthy challenge for those parents among us and how we view our children are they for us or are they for god who are we raising them for what are we looking for them to become now As we finish this morning's verses, we're we're really challenged by Hannah's heart in prayer. And I'd like to conclude with a parable that Jesus offered regarding prayer. It's found in Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying there was in a city, a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. There, There was a widow in that city. This, of course, is a hypothetical a parable, a story told to offer a heavenly meaning. And she came to this judge and said, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, because remember, he didn't fear God or regard man. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her continual coming in in it, she weary me. She's wearing me down. Then the Lord said... Considering this unjust judge who responds to this widow, not because he's a good judge, but because she was, frankly, a little bit annoying, Jesus says, Hear what the unjust said. Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night, Through, though uh, he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Jesus uses a negative example to teach the positive. He says, if this is true in a worldly, secular, negative sense, worst case scenario, how much more does your father want to hear your prayers? How much more does he want to answer when you cry out to him? On the path to Israel's redemption, desperation would be met, resulting in a mother crying out to God in faith. And it would be her son, Samuel, who would help to call Israel to trust and follow God, who would anoint kings and light the way to God's purpose and calling for the nation. And one day, hundreds of years later, through the second king's family, and would come the promised Messiah, who would bring salvation and redemption not only to Israel, not only to the world, but to you and I individually seated here this morning. Israel's story is one of hope. Israel's story of redemption is not for them only, but it's for the world and it's for you and I. Let's stand as we close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we are reminded of your great plan of redemption and salvation. God, that began with choosing one man. Lord, and, and ended with salvation being offered to the world. Lord, I pray that as we make our way through this book, you would cause, Lord, a fresh wonder in our hearts to expand as we reflect on your commitment, God, and your covenant, Lord. Thank you, Father, that, that it is weighted on your strength and ability to keep your promises, not on ours, not on our faithfulness. Help us to trust you, Father. Help us to worship when it's hard. Help us to pray when we're tempted to become bitter. God, that we would see that sometimes you bring unbelievable answers, Lord, through our prayer in the difficult and painful places. God, that sometimes those, those answers that come after barrenness, Lord, are the means of changing the world. We want to trust you in that way in our lives today. Let's do that now in Jesus' name.